be uh, straight up honest first. Um, when I was preparing for this message, all right, why don't we just get those chairs away? There we go. Too many people distracted by nice chairs. They're all jealous. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, and we forgot to put them on the second, every second chair. Yesterday kind of just blew all my administrative um, tank um, down. So uh, we have made calendars for the new uh, season, uh, the next couple of months. Uh, for everyone, so please grab one of these. You can put them on your um, fridge. Uh, it lets you know some of the fun things that are happening in the life of our church. All right, so today we are starting a new series and it's called Great Hope. And we call it Great Hope because, well, I call it Great Hope because I was thinking about Christmas and I was thinking about, you know, what does Jesus bring? Jesus brings hope and it's amazing. And it's not just any hope, it's great hope. You know, that's what I was thinking. And then I started thinking, hey, let's talk about the things that the Bible tells us to hope for. Because quite often, all of us have different hopes, right? I hope that, you know, the weather every Sunday will be mild and nice for us to do setup. That's something I hope for. Some of you don't care about that. Uh, uh, Beck loves summer and she hopes that every day is stinking hot so she can go to the beach. Not my hope. I hope for maybe uh, spring without hay fever. That's what I hope for, right? You know, that's a nice one. But, you know, the Bible actually tells us some things that we are meant to be hoping for. And so that's what we want to cover in this series because I think sometimes we need to align with what the Bible is saying to hope for because that's where great hope actually lies. And as I was thinking about that and reading the Bible, today's topic is one topic that I do not resound with. I don't like it. It doesn't make much sense to me. And, and, and so I actually put it in because I was like, I actually need to know more about this because as I'm reading, I'm reading that I'm meant to have this hope, but I'm like, but I don't really care about this. And, um, and, and then God started to really open things up for me. And so I wanted to bring it to you this morning because I now have a very different perspective on it. We're going to be talking about how the Bible calls us to hope in Jesus' second coming. See, none of you care about that. Like, mm, huh? What? Jesus' second coming? What is that all about? So here's a fact, right? Jesus is coming back again. Jesus died uh, on the cross, rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven. And there's a whole bunch of promises in the Bible that say that Jesus is coming back again. This is actually a central truth in our Christianity. If you do not believe in the second coming, you actually don't really believe in Christianity like it's described in the Bible. I'm not going to say that you are a heretic, but it's a heretical thing to not think that Jesus is coming back again. This is so important that one of our beliefs as an ACC church uh, uh, talks about the second coming. Any person that says that they want to be a pastor, any church that says that they want to be an ACC church needs to affirm this statement. And this is the statement, we believe and look forward to, and look forward to. We anticipate, we eagerly anticipate, we hope for the imminent and personal return of Jesus Christ to gather his people to himself and to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. So this is something that we are, as a core Christian belief, meant to be 
hoping for. What are we hoping for? The imminent, which means to come, and personal return, which means Jesus himself will be returning, um, of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and what's the purpose of Jesus coming uh, uh, back to... to Yes, his personal return. What's, what's the purpose of it? Well, number one, as our belief statement says, is to gather uh, um, his people to himself. And this is found, I'm going to go pretty quickly in all of these things because I think most of you understand it. Um, and so in John 14, 1-4, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Jesus was saying this to comfort his disciples. His disciples had just heard him teach for like, I don't know, the fifth time that he is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. They were obviously shocked again, <laughs> funny, and uh, they were troubled. And so Jesus said, don't be troubled because I'm going to come back again. And I'm going, and this going is for your benefit because I'm preparing a place for you. And then he says, you know the place where I'm going. He's like, where are you going? And really, what Jesus is talking about is the coming of his kingdom, which he brings in when he comes back again. This is confirmed in Revelation 21, 3 to 4. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. God's house is going to be here with us. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And this is an amazing promise, guys. This is what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So when Jesus comes back a second time, he ushers in a new kingdom. And this new kingdom is a very different uh, kingdom from what we are experiencing now. A death, loss, trauma, grief, mourning, all of them gone. We now get to live with God. That is what the second coming is all about. However, the next thing that we need to note is that the second coming is not just about Jesus coming in and being a big party. It also says that Jesus' second coming will involve a day of judgment. All right? So there's a judgment that takes place at the second coming. Romans 2.16 says this, This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And if we read Matthew chapter 25, we will find a whole bunch of parables where Jesus is describing what the day of judgment is going to be like. He's going to separate those who are going to be gathered to eternal life and those who are going to eternal judgment, all right? So the second coming is the ushering in of the new kingdom. It is also judgment day. Now, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to do a poll. How many people here are the type that you like to buy a present, a Christmas present for someone, and you are so excited that you need to give it to them even though it's not Christmas yet? Anyone here? Raise your hands. There's a few people who's like, I need to give you the gift. Now, is there anyone who buys a present, you let the person know you bought a present, and you let them know it's an amazing present, and then you say you're going to have to wait? Maybe not even Christmas Day because it's a really busy day. Maybe Boxing Day. You like to stream.
stretch the gift out. You like to build the suspense, and you like the person to feel like they are having to wait for this gift. Anyone like that? No one. Oh yeah, a couple of people. A little bit, a little bit cheeky on that front. Now, how many people buy a present, and then you tell the person, "I've got you an amazing gift, and you better behave well. If not, you're not going to get it." Oh, that fear! Oh my gosh! And parents, I think, are particularly good at this particular form of gift giving. Now, when I think about the second coming, that's what comes to mind. Anyone like that? Jesus says, "Believe in me. Like, invite me into your life. You get eternal life. But when I come back again, there's going to be judgment first." And there's every chance that you're going to end up with the goats rather than the sheep. Do you want to know that reference, Matthew 25? Is that does does anyone get that sense that God is maybe to me when you think about it in that kind of a sense, it almost seems like God's a little bit sneaky, maybe a bit manipulative, maybe I don't know. Like God uses bribery. It's a bit off color, isn't it? And I think for me, a reason why I don't anticipate, hope for, look forward to the second coming is because, like, I don't know. Like, I've already got salvation. Why go through the whole rigmarole of having to do a judgment day and and seeing people, you know, being sifted and judged? Like, what what's the point of that, God? What what is that really all about? Is that what it really is going to be? Uh, are you are you? Are you saying that my salvation is actually not that strong? Can I trust that I have been saved? Should I be excited about this or really scared about it? I tend to lean towards at least slightly scared. Anyone here same with me? Or everyone's like, oh no, I'm good. I've been saved by grace. You know, I I think that many of us, when we are reading the Bible, there is this tension of like, how does salvation work? You know, and we've been talking about that over the last series. We've been talking about um, what salvation is like. And you know, if we think that salvation is a one-off event, that when we say the sinner's prayer and we invite Jesus into our lives, and that's it, you know, eternal life is already given to you. Full stop. You can take it to the bank, and that is all that there is. Then the second coming becomes a bit weird. It's like, what's the point of this whole like? Why do you give me a token and then I got to cash in the token on the final day, right? And it's like, hmm, I don't get this, God. Like, why? Why are you going through the system? Why can't you just kind of go, eternal life, boom, nice, done, well. But if we understand that salvation is a process, which is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, we get this understanding that salvation wasn't just something that God gave me all those times ago. But it's something that God is working through me all of this time now till eternity. And for me, the key passage that I want to focus on for the rest of this morning is Titus chapter two, verses eleven to fifteen. And read this. This is amazing. It says, "For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people." 
It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is, uh, what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, Paul here actually breaks down the two comings of Jesus. Do you see that? It says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Very first verse at the top there, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, that appearing of Jesus was an appearance of grace. Jesus came to represent the grace of God. He embodies the grace of God, that God himself would desire to be in relationship with us, who would die on a cross for my sin, so that he can redeem me, so that I can have eternal life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever should believe will not perish, but have eternal life. That is the appearance of God's grace. However, when we look at the appearance of God's grace, it doesn't say this, for the grace of God has appeared that that gives us the right to live happy lives, to live prosperous, wonderful lives where we get to do whatever we want. No, it says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers, offers, not given, offers, Salvation to all people. What does this offer of salvation do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives while we wait. You know, what does this actually mean? I was thinking about this, and I thought about this um, like an offer to purchase a house. Many years ago, Beck and I, we put our house on the market so that we could move into Carlisle where we are now. And when we put it on the market, we had people putting in offers to purchase the house. Actually, we didn't have many people that offered, but we finally got a good offer at the end. However, the offer to purchase had stipulations in it, right? And one of those stipulations was that we would have to pay for a structural uh, inspection of the house. It's kind of weird that the person wants to buy a house, but we need to prove that the house is all right. But we paid for it, and we were like, okay, you know, the house is still standing, right? It should be fine. And so we got this guy in, and he looked at the structure, and then he went and looked up in the roof, and then he came back down, and he said, I do not have good news for you. One of uh, the beams in the roof has actually bowed quite significantly, and it's a matter of winters before your roof is going to get flooded because the roof tiles have all moved because this beam wasn't properly supported. And so he said, it, the good thing is that the beam is not in such a bad shape that, it's com- that you had to take it out, and it'll cost us something like, I don't know, $15,000 just to replace that one beam. Um, so maybe we can still support it, and so that's what he did, but it still cost us a few grand, I think, from memory. But this is the thing, right? These people put their names down to buy our house, and they said, I want to buy the house. 
but there were conditions for this house to be sold. The house needed to be in the condition that we promised that it was going to be in. If the house was not in the condition that we promised that it was going to be in, the buyers had every right to pull out of the offer. The offer is not signed, sealed, and delivered. The offer is the beginning of the process of the signed, sealed, and delivered. In a similar way, not completely the same, but in a very similar way, when Jesus first came, it was the offer of salvation. This is Jesus saying, I will give you eternal life if you believe in me. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to have faith in him. And that is something that we're going to explore in a couple of weeks' time because faith and hope always seem to mesh in together. But if we believe in Jesus, then we are going to live in a different way. My belief will necessarily inform how I live. If I believe that there is no such thing as gravity, then I will try to live as though gravity has no hold on me. If I believe, another way is that if I believe that people are good, it informs my behaviors. I will have no problem going up to people and to speak with them. If I believe that people are evil, what am I going to do? I am going to close them off. My beliefs determine my actions. And so if I say that I believe in Jesus, then my life looks different. And that's what Paul was writing in Titus, that the offer of salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and that we are supposed to wait for the fulfillment of this offer. And how does it get fulfilled? It gets fulfilled in the second appearance, which is the appearance, can you bring up Titus chapter 2 again? The second appearance is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Note this, first appearance is the appearance of grace, the second appearance is the appearance of glory. I think this is an absent thing in a lot of my theology that I think that God's grace is what He wants me to see and to know. But I think that we haven't talked enough about the appearance of God's glory, the appearing of God's glory. And I started to think about this. Why is it so important that Jesus appears with grace and then He appears with glory? Think about this with me. Why is it that Jesus then does come with grace and glory? Why did he need to wait for 2,000 years? Sorry, more than that. Way more than that. We're already at 2,000 years. Why did he need to have this in-between period? To show this to you, I just want you to think about the book of Revelation. The final book of the Bible. How many people have read Revelation before? How many people like reading Revelation? How many people think that um, the imagery in Revelation is so comforting and wonderful. You know, the four-headed beast, the horn that has another horn, and then the horn gets chopped off and then another horn grows, and there's an evil lady riding a dragon. Like, what the heck is going on? Revelation was written in some way to show us in human words and in the culture of the day the glory of Jesus. When we read that, we don't get it. We struggle with it because the glory of God is something that our words can't capture. And the glory of God is actually extremely scary for human beings because the glory of God is the, it's 
too amazing. One theologian puts it this way, the glory of God is like the radiance of the sun. The closer you get to the sun, the more burnt you're going to be. <laughs> you know, when we read in Revelation that Jesus appears, often what happens when Jesus appears, everyone does this, glory to the Lord. It's kind of like people can't even stand in the presence of the glory of God. They can't. There is constant worship going on every time Jesus appears because of his amazing glory. If Jesus came with both grace and glory, all we will see is the glory. Let me say that again. If Jesus appeared in the fullness of grace and the fullness of his glory, none of us would be able to see any aspect of his grace because the glory would be blinding. And so God, by His great grace, holds back His glory to be revealed in the final day so that we can see that His heart for us is not to burn us to a crisp, but is actually to have a relationship with us, to bring us in, to be His people. And so He waits to the final day to reveal the fullness of His glory. So when you read Revelation, it actually is meant to be an extremely comforting book because it tells us of the glory, the majesty, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why we're meant to be waiting for that is because the glory seals the offer of salvation. Let me say that again. The glory of God, the revealing of the glory of God seals the offer of salvation. Why? I think it's because the glory of God shows his victory and his power and his might. It is only when that is fully revealed that we are able to truly be regenerated the way that the Bible teaches us about it. We just sung a song about resurrecting me, right? It's like the resurrected king is resurrecting me. The truth is we're not resurrected yet. The real resurrection takes place at the second coming because the revealing of the glory of God brings us fully back into life. What we have in this interim period as well is part of the grace of God. The grace of God has been revealed and we are showing whether we are going to follow in God's ways or not. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, you know where I'm going. Or you know how to, basically something along those lines. What is he saying? He's actually pointing to himself. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's telling his disciples, if you follow me at the revealing of God's glory, that's actually a day of celebration. That actually truly is a day of celebration. When we forget that the revealing of the day of judgment and the second coming that's all intertwined, is actually an amazing day. We lose sight and we just want to live in God's grace, but not God's glory. And that's a real problem for us as Christians. You see, a God of grace, but not a God of glory, does not need my submission. He's gracious. I'll trample over him. I'll do what I want. A God of grace, but not of glory, might not even have that much power anyway. He's a good guy, but is he a powerful God? 
What we need to have in our theology and our understanding of God is that He is both a God of grace and of glory. And if I understand that grace is meant to bring me on a journey of understanding His glory, I am looking forward to the fullness of the revealing of His glory. Let me read to you a couple of passages. In 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5 it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope. When we accept Jesus into our lives, we're actually birthed into this living hope. And what we are hoping for is the inheritance that is in the kingdom of God that is beyond the revealing of God's glory at the second coming. So it says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are not fully saved yet because salvation is to be revealed. When God's glory is revealed, that is the sign sealed delivered moment. Does that make sense? But when we get that, we get more than what we even hope and imagine for. We get an inheritance that does not fade, does not spoil, does not perish. And so what we are meant to be doing while we are living on this earth is actually stopping ourselves from constantly looking at what's happening here and now and going, God, what are you wanting to reveal? And where are you wanting my life to go? What is the goal of my life? The goal of my life isn't what's happening here. The goal of my life is what's happening in eternity. And God has a lot to say about how we do that. But if our hope, if our anticipation is what paycheck I get, what position I get, what pleasure I get on this earth, what happiness I get here, I am missing out on what God is wanting to do in eternity. And that is why it's important for us to hope in the coming glory of Jesus Christ. And one more thing, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, it says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. This is how Paul talks about any of the suffering that we have on this earth. Light and momentary troubles are achieving for us um, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Anyway, with all of this that is said, I don't know if I presented it amazingly today. I've rushed through a little bit. But I, I want to finish off with this thought. I was reading an article in preparing for this, and this also puts out this question. Am I eagerly waiting the coming of Jesus? Which is a question that I'm not very, I wasn't very sure about. And then he gave three reasons why people might not be eagerly waiting the coming of Jesus. The first is this, that we haven't been taught that Jesus is coming back again. And so we simply just think about this time that we've got here and now. We don't think about eternity that much because this is all that we care about. And so that's one thing. Another thing that he said, and this one was the one that got me. He said, you may have trusted Jesus as both Savior and Lord, but have grown cold and have not felt for some time that Jesus is precious. 
and that seeing Him would be the fulfillment of all your longings. And I was like, I think that's me. I think that I have gone cold. The glory of God is what my heart should be fixated on. And yet that has paled in comparison for me to things that I'm seeing on this earth. Even leading this church, right? I really desperately want to see this church be healthy and grow and succeed. And sometimes seeing that can be more important than seeing God's glory. Sometimes what I want to see, what I desire here, you know, anyone setting goals for the next year and thinking about that, sometimes those goals are more important than seeing the glory of God. Now, seeing the glory of God will orient all of these goals and all that's going on. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't have goals. It's just like lie in a park and say, I'm waiting for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. No, the glory of the Lord desire, like for us to get to the second coming, it's actually a whole life that we are meant to be living in the light of God's glory. That's what the Bible tells us. But am I getting cold or am I seeing Jesus as precious? the revealing of Jesus as the most precious thing in my life. But there's a third point, which is a very dangerous point. This author says is the most dangerous thing is that we don't see Jesus as Lord. See, when we see the appearance of God's grace and we fixate on that, we get Jesus as Savior. But when we don't attach it to the glory of God, we don't see Jesus as Lord. What does Lord mean? It means that He gets preeminent space in our lives. That my every thought is filtered through what Jesus wants. My every desire is filtered through whether it is pleasing to God or not. It is filtered through, Jesus, you are above and beyond anything that I desire. And I want you. And so how am I going to find you even while on this life? My whole heart, my perspective is orientated towards Jesus. And when you don't have lordship, you actually don't get saviorship. Because Jesus only wants to be savior of those who have made him his lord. Can you put up the salvation screen that we normally put up? It has a verse there and it says this in a moment. But it basically says, yes, if you declare your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? And, and, and we sometimes use the lips, but it's not connected with the heart. When we believe that God raised him from the dead, why are we saying we are believing that God is powerful and glorious? It is not just this belief that Jesus loves me and will let me do whatever I want to do. It's this belief that Jesus is Lord. We believe that Jesus is Savior, yes, and we believe that he is Lord. Our great hope that the Bible keeps telling us to hope for is not that we get a nice life. But our great hope is in the coming of Jesus. And so if that means that my life here on this earth is marked by suffering for Jesus' sake, that's a blessed life. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I believe, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted on behalf of my name, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
We need to orient ourselves to this. If we don't think about the second coming and what God wants to bring in, we're thinking about what I want to bring in today. And that's what this is all about. If we can get the band up this morning. Another thing that I learned this week, which is really cool, is that the early church actually built into their worship a cry for Jesus to come again. And it was built in using this word called Maranatha. Maranatha simply is the Aramaic word that is translated, come Lord Jesus. In the book of Revelations, in the book of 1 Corinthians, we find this cry, come Lord Jesus. And the early church would use it as a song of worship, Maranatha, Maranatha. And I used to think that when people were saying that, they just wanted to be zapped out of this life. I thought it was people just wanting to finish off here so they can get there. But what I'm starting to realize is that the cry of their heart is really, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it, the day that you come, Jesus, is the day of the fulfillment of all your promises. It's the day of salvation for mankind. It is an amazing day that I should desire because you desire it. So I need to learn how to cry Maranatha in my worship. Not because it is some magical word that will shorten the length of time that I have to wait before Jesus comes, but it's because it's orientating my heart to know what is truly important, not what is temporary, but what is eternal. And so this morning as we have communion, if I can get the, <coughs> excuse me, if I can get the host team to distribute the emblems. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 26, this is what Paul writes. And he writes this about the Lord's Supper, the communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then this is what Paul writes. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death, the Lord's death, until he comes. I used to struggle with this because I'm like, why am I proclaiming Jesus' death? Because I'm remembering the appearance of His grace, but I'm also looking forward to the appearance of His glory. And I'm saying, God, I know that You are a God of grace, and I receive that. But I also know that You are a God of glory, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the day that you are revealed so that we can see you in the fullness of your majesty, in the fullness of your glory. And God, I pray that in my life that I don't orient myself to anything that is temporary, but God, I want to see you and you alone. So that's what we're doing this morning. As you take the bread and as you take the cup, you're remembering God's grace. 
and you're looking forward to the revealing of His glory, why don't you take off the bread and why don't you take off the cup? The band is going to lead us in a song of worship in just a moment. And we're going to sing that verse about the appearance of God's glory, what it might be like for the, the day that comes and God is revealed. So in this moment, can I ask you, are you eagerly waiting the second coming of our Lord? Or is there something in you that goes, mm, I don't know about that. You know, when I was young in particular, I felt like, no, 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 God, don't come again. Because I grew up at a time and when it seemed to be all the talk all the time, oh, it's the end times, the end times, you know, we've got this war, we've got that happening. And I was like, no, 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 Jesus, why don't you wait until I experience all the stuff that I want to experience? <laughs> Anyone a little bit like me? And the more I go through life, the more I go, hang on. That's not making Jesus my Lord. So whatever your timeline, God, whatever you desire, I want for me as well. So this morning, can we stand and can we worship God together? Thanks so much, Ben. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.